Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. All right, three, two, one, let's boogie. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. This season is sponsored by Simplify ETFs. Simplify seeks to help you modernize your portfolio with its innovative set of options-based strategies. Full disclosure, prior to Simplify sponsoring the season, we had incorporated some of Simplify's ETFs into our ETF model mandates here at Newfound. If you're interested in reading a brief case study about why and how, visit simplify.us slash flirtingwithmodels. And stick around after the episode for an ongoing conversation about markets and convexity with the convexity maven himself, Simplify's own Harley Bassman. My guest this episode is Jem Carson, founder and senior managing partner of IGEA Capital Management. Jem began his career in the pits, and so we begin our conversation with a discussion by comparing and contrasting today's markets versus days gone by and perhaps more importantly, the wisdom gained from that era. It was in the pits that Jem began to understand and develop his intuition for markets and what would become the colorful cast of characters he uses to describe what's driving flow, Gary the Gorilla, Vanna, and Charm the Sloth. How these characters cooperate or fight amongst themselves provides Jem with a forecast as to how markets should behave. It seems like these are new and growing forces, But Jem argues they're as old as time, and, more importantly, increased awareness does not mean that they can just be arbed away. They are, potentially, fundamental forces of markets. We end our conversation with the discussion of how these flows can have a profound impact for equity factor performance and what this all means for stock pickers. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jem Carson. Jim, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you here. I feel like I'm getting you a little late, though. You came hot on the Twitter scene. Everyone all of a sudden knew who you were, knew your colorful cast of characters. You showed up on every podcast, and I feel like I got got sort of the short end of the stick, given the fact I do a seasonal podcast here. You had your chance. You could have had me that's, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I was playing hard to get. That's you all were. It was. See, that's, this is what happens. That's all it was. Well, I, you know, I think the good news is, at least for our listeners, is that we're going to try to take this a little bit of a different angle than maybe some of the topics you've tackled on other podcasts. I know if folks want more of your background in terms of your life story and you being a world traveler, they can sort of get that other places here. We're hopefully going to dive into some more technical details. So without further ado, 
Let's jump into it. And maybe to get started and set the table with a little bit of context, can you provide a little bit of a high-level overview of some of the strategies that you actually manage? For example, what instruments you're trading, the horizons you're trading over, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So my background is in volatility arbitrage, particularly equity arbitrage, are three strategies. Our legacy strategy is a long vol strategy that focuses on the first three to four months of the curve in both uh, equities and equity indices. It trades long vol on a both a correlation and dispersion basis, but it also um, is always long kind of units and convexity. It's long skew, which is rare for a lot of long vol strategies, unless you're a tail fund. We are relative value though. So in being long vol, our long vol strategies kicked off over 15% alpha for over eight years, which is you know a badge of honor despite the market going straight up. And volatility, particularly is several years, they're not doing very well in 2016-17 with the lowest performance all time. That is our, our oldest strategy. We also have a vol neutral version of that that focuses on the same kind of alpha generating piece, but without the long volatility uh, exposure. And then we have a third newer strategy, which is focused on the distributions underlying those long vol and vol neutral strategies for market direction and vol uh, have gotten better and better over time. And I talk a lot about Vana and Charm and these functions of reflexivity that affect market directions. Th- those take those distributions from those factors and really use them for directional vol, skew, and market directional bets. So those are the three products. But that, that one's completely different, obviously, not volatility arbitrage, but really came out of necessity from the other two products. Now, you started your career in the pits and were working there during the dot-com era. A lot of people are looking at markets today and saying they're frothy. They sort of echo with a lot of what was happening during the dot-com era. Can you compare and contrast for me markets then versus markets today, and maybe in particular, what's going on in the volatility markets? Yeah. So I started in this business in 98. So right on the tail of long-term capital. So 2000, uh, you know, the tech bust was really my first volatility event that I experienced as a trader. And it really informed a lot of how I see the world even though everybody speaks about it as a kind of evaluation of that, there were a lot of vol-driven factors that led to what happened in 2000 through 2003. And those factors are now stronger than they've ever been. So I think that although there are similarities, the key here is that there is a much bigger vol complex now than there ever was. The factors that are at play in the vol markets that drove a lot of kind of the unwinds in 2000 are are significantly bigger and significantly more important now. So in that sense, now this market is almost 100% more leveraged than it was in 2000. So I think that's a key difference. The Fed reaction function is very different. Obviously, in 2000, the Fed had a lot of room to move interest rates lower and to provide liquidity. We've seen the effects of that over the last 20 years. They obviously pushed the bubble from equities over into the real estate market. And then we had a, the second kind of tremor from that in 2008. I think right now, the Tina effect and the move to fiscal and the change that that's going to have on how this plays out is going to be very different. I think the tails are much more dangerous in this market than they were back then, and not just because of the size of, of players in the volatility market and the lack of liquidity, but also the fact that the Fed will not be able to come provide the same amount of liquidity almost by choice as well because of the move to fiscal and increasing inflation. 
Before we sort of dive into those factors more deeply, I do want to take a moment to sort of acknowledge that the, a lot of the physical pits have disappeared and the skills learned in those pits aren't necessarily learned by traders that are coming up today. I'm always curious to ask people who worked in those pits, what lessons from that era do you think are sort of permanent and are still important to you? And what lessons are now outdated? Yeah. So on social media, I talk a lot about kind of these flows. The reason I came to learn about their importance was really a function of necessity. As one of the biggest market makers in the S&P 500 and, and equity indices during the financial crisis from 2007 to 2010, I had what all the dealers had on and in size. And so, you know, invariably you would set the positions against kind of where the flow was going, as all market makers do. You'd always make sure to have a significant amount of edge in the trades when you put them on. And that structurally good trades, you'd try and hold for a little bit longer. But invariably, when you went back and did your analysis, you'd realize that those were not profitable trades more times than not, especially the bigger ones. And then you go do an attribution analysis and say, okay, why is that? What we came to learn very early on was that that edge was going into other places in the market. That was going into the distribution of markets. It was moving the markets. It was changing the skew dynamics. It was changing the implied volatility dynamics at play as those positions kind of move through time and, and market move. And so those lessons, what I learned there has really informed a lot of the edge and alpha that we generate now as a firm even though you know we're not making markets anymore. So I think that those lessons are incredibly valuable. I honestly don't think there's a better place to learn than actually physically being in a pit, seeing how actually the flow comes through, who the customers are, what they're doing, how they're managing the portfolio, what kind of reactions they may have to different scenarios. That understanding has really allowed us to understand the data that we look at now much better. I, I couldn't have modeled or come up with these theories by just data mining, by looking at the data on hand. It, it really, because um, a lot of it is very complex, multi-dimensional decision-making stuff. So really having that qualitative understanding has been incredibly powerful for coming up with a, a sound quantitative framework. For folks coming up today, is that still a skill set they can learn given that the pits are no longer here? Is that something you can really only learn through apprenticeship at this point? Well, I mean, how do we all learn, right? We all learn through, like you said, apprenticeship from learning from others. The beauty of the pit was it was like apprenticeship with 300 other traders surrounding you at once. You're watching great traders who have been around for 20, 30, 40 years, who have lived through it, have gone through that pressure cooker all at once in the same environment. It's an intense place. You uh, you learn probably 10x what you would at 10x the speed, right? All at once. And uh, so I think you know, there are some other lessons too there, right? Learning how about yourself and how to control the emotional aspects of managing capital and being in stressful environments, all of those things. I think it's a very hard thing to learn in other places without working at least for other people who have had that experience or have that expertise. So you've taken Twitter a bit by storm and you use a, a large number of colorful characters to sort of get your point across. I think there's Gary the Gorilla, there's Charm the Sloth and Vanna, Vanna White. And you use these characters to illustrate your views. And it's a really fun way to get your message across. But I know that it's also, they serve as really, really important personifications of your investment philosophy and the lessons you've learned over time. So can you explain who these characters are and why they're so important to you? 
Yeah. So one thing people don't know is uh, along with financial mathematics and macro policy uh, in college, I studied English literature. So, so one, <laughs> that's part of the, the driving force here. It's like, I, I figure if I'm going to be communicating this stuff, I want to do it with a little bit of color, but yes, they're very important. So this all starts with an understanding that options, positions, uh, dealer positions move, you know, their deltas change and their vol aspects change over time. And if dealers are positioned in a major, with major positions and are getting longer and longer vol, that naturally reflexively is going to have a dampening effect on vol. If they're getting longer skew, that's going to have a dampening effect on that skew. If they're getting longer deltas, that's going to drive the market up. All of this is reflexivity. At the end of the day, I put out a piece a while back early on about a clerk named Gary in the pits. And Gary would always be challenged to eat, you know, eat 500 chicken McNuggets, something crazy, or, or shoot 100 free throws and, and make them. And, and so, you know, but betting against Gary was always a bad idea because Gary was invariably on the winning end of these trades. People would give him money or, or a cut of the, the pie if he accomplished the task. So unlike insurance where, you know, tornado insurance, where you want to have, if you have insurance, the tornado, having the insurance doesn't affect whether the tornado comes through town or not. That's real insurance. In this situation, there's reflexivity. Gary is going to actually work harder, make sure that he knows that he's going to be able to make XYZ bet. And so you don't want to bet against Gary. You don't want to bet against the reflexivity. That was the point. That's where kind of Gary came from. This idea of dealer positioning is critical. Positioning in general in the markets, people realize this across all other assets, right? Short interest, like people look at short interest, right? That's reflexivity too. Things along those lines are looked at in lots of different ways, but people don't understand how important they are in a leveraged market that's growing tremendously and uh, has very kind of significant exposure, like vol exposure. So there's Gary, who's dealer positioning, particularly a gamma is what I tend to refer to him as. And there's Vanna, which is the change in, uh, you know, per change in volatility, the change in delta of dealer positioning, charm, who we colorfully use a sloth for because he's very slow and just work kind of works over time. Charm is per amount of time, the change in delta. There's also other ones that I don't talk as much about, but Volga and Voma. And those two are, uh, you know, are those same effects, but on volatility. All of these really, we measure them very closely. We look at dealer positioning. We take, without giving too much secret sauce, we take from the actual executing brokers, all of the flow, both prime brokers as well for structured trades, as well as uh, exchange traded. And we mark them as, you know, whether they're uh, dealers or type of customer that's executing it, whether it's hedge, not hedge. And we structure this data and then we use our own kind of, we look at the volatility surfaces, we kind of create some models that allow us to kind of process all this data and give us a real good sense of estimation of what the dealer positioning is like over different expirations. And that allows us to essentially say, okay, this is about how much uh, Volga or, or Voma or, or Vano or Charm or Gamma exposure we have. And that is a major input to our distributions, both for volatility as well as market. And so, you know, our strategies really look at these distributions of market, vol moves in each market move, as well as kind of skew moves. And so all of these are inputs to those distributions and drive a significant amount of uh, structural alpha. 2020 felt like a year where this concept of option dealers having a major reflexive impact upon the underlying went mainstream. You started to see it appear in the news a lot more. And there's been a lot of people putting different theories out there as to why, as to really what the driving Greek is. A lot of people talking about gamma or delta. You very much seem to focus on Vanna and Charm as being 
the real meaningful drivers. And I think you're very unique in that view. One of the few I really hear talk about those Greeks in particular. Why do you think they're so much more important than the others? Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that question because it's actually the one thing I haven't really discussed as much as I think is necessary. If you think about it, tail events don't happen frequently, right? And tail events, that convexity is when gamma really matters, especially for indices, especially for markets writ large, right? For single stocks like GameStop or whatever, gamma might be more important because of the idiosyncratic kind of tail risk. But for markets writ large, for indices, broadly, those tail events are are rare. So gamma matters a lot for those events. I'm not diminishing the value of gamma for risk management and for understanding kind of for a big move, how much gamma effects there are. Like March of this year, gamma was was everything, right? But in 95, 97% of scenarios, they're not tail events. They are day-to-day, what's happening in the market? What are the driving forces? And how can we predict and understand what's happening? And what Vana and Charm are, are those delta effects like gamma are, but for those other 95% of scenarios. And they really drive so much of kind of these old market adages and understandings of how markets work. If you understand Vana and Charm, you're really understanding risk premia. And you're really understanding the effects that risk premia have, that convexity, which is being hedged, managed and warehoused in places and hedged with linear hedges, and the effects of time on that construct, on these carry trades, so to speak, and the movement of volatility on those constructs, like the risk that actually levels in those products. So again, I could name a million adages. I actually want to do this on social media at some point, just have people throw an adage and give them an explanation for why Vana and Charm are driving that. Because almost every single one is driven, you know, never short a dull market, right? Like why? Because if you're sitting there and nothing's happening, time's going to pass. Dealers are short put, long call in the indices because everybody's long. The whole world is long. If you live, you eat, sleep, breathe, you're long. You own a home, you have a job, you know, you're long. And so everybody, all dealers are short the carry trade of short put, long call. That's why S&P SKU is as high as it is, the highest in the world. And if that's the case, dealers have stock to buy. Every minute day time passes, the more we don't move, vol comes down as well. Term structure is upward sloping. So there's a natural vana in the market as vol slides down the term structure. So all of these factors every day show you, you know, kind of how the vol is going to be bought back. Also, what times it's going to be bought back, when people are going to rehedge their books. It explains a lot of kind of weekend effects and a lot of other day-to-day things. I'm actually going to give you the opportunity now because I found a tweet of yours that I want to read to you where you said, so many cliche market adages, which seem to describe almost magical market phenomenon, can be relatively easily explained by structural derivative flows. Now, I sort of have two thoughts. One, I obviously want you to explain that, which you just mentioned. But two, what it brings up for me is this idea of, is this new? For many of us thinking about modern markets, it does seem like this reflexive option-based hedging flow that's having such a large tail wagging the dog impact seems like a new phenomenon. It sounds like to you it's not. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'd love to know when you think this really all started happening and maybe whether it's accelerated over time. At least since I've been in the business, which is 22 years, this has been a phenomenon that's existed. I know that for a fact because I've traded off of it. But my broad view is that this has been around almost since the beginning of time. And the reality is that risk premia is not new. Risk premia has always been there. The need to 
hedge structural long exposure in all assets, right, has always been there. The need for insurance has always been there. And, you know, one of the biggest risk premiums is is market exposure, right? Everybody, like I said, is long. So that is a structured carry trade. We have other carry trades, right? We have currency carry trades. We have all kinds of other carry trades, but they're structural and they're not going away. And when you have that, that risk premium, that's going to create these effects. You know, we call them Greeks and we refer to them as if, you know, they're tied to options, but risk premium itself is essentially this, you know, this carry trade, this volatility exposure that I'm talking about. So these effects have been around forever, as far as I'm concerned. You know, they may grow as a, and they may be much more predictable, which I believe they definitely are now, because not just are there more people doing it, but there are more set products that people use. So it's easier to predict kind of timing of some of that risk premium and when things get bought back, et cetera. But the exposure itself has always been there. I'll throw a couple adages out here just to kind of uh, make this fun, but markets climb a wall of worry, right? Why do markets climb a wall of worry? Everybody thinks it's because, well, there are some shorts out there, right? There are more shorts and they can be bought back. That's some of it. That's reflexivity as well. But the reality, like we saw at the election, I mean, we were able to predict that election. The distributional outcome of that was fairly easy to predict from our point of view because we understood the positioning. People were very worried. Implied volatility was very high. Skew was very high. That leads to a ton of potential energy, right, in the form of Vana and Charm, especially when the curve's in backwardation like it was, this is a a slingshot waiting to be kind of released the second that event or that insurance premium, that risk premium gets pulled out. Markets take the stairs up and the elevator down. Why is that? Not just because people are scared on the way down and they sell and they're long. You know, those things are connected to the need for insurance premium. And dealers are essentially embody that risk by being short that, that premium, which causes gamma effects on the way down, which is reflexive, which causes Vana and charm flows on a decay of those uh, of those premium. You know, I just already mentioned never short a dull market, sell the rumor, buy the news. Same thing, right? I mean, all of these things, if you think about it, these are these are core principles to how we trade markets day in, day out. And they're structurally tied to this idea of insurance premium in the market interest premium. Anyway, I could keep on going, never catch a falling knife. Uh, bull markets are born on, on pessimism, grow on skepticism, right? All of these things, which are, again, the adages that really matter in day-to-day are, again, in my view, tied to risk premium and these effects, which we could actually measure. And I think that's the important part. They're not just concepts and ideas and general views. We can measure these and measure the flows and demand that come out of them and really add structural alpha to our trades. There's a big time-based element when you discuss these effects. So for example, you often mention windows opening or closing, Vanna going on vacation, or really specific dates that seem to impact the path dependency of your views. Can you expand on what you're looking at and why certain dates are more important than others? Yeah. So one of the great things about time is it's predictable, not just seconds and minutes and days, but also you know expiration cycles, understanding also weekends and how dealers measure time, which is not linear. It has to do with you know, trading days versus calendar days, also events, right? Time is different around events. And so if you can understand those concepts and understand the positioning around these different OPEX or other expiration kind of cycles, when that risk premium is coming out of the market, you can really understand when these Vana and charm flows are coming to fruition. There's also 
again, this isn't just understanding the risk premium that's out there. It's understanding the participants in the market and how they are managing or having to manage risk around these positions. And some of the bigger ones, and again, remember, everybody's got kind of the same position on. It's a good position. It has you know, a structural edge to it. It's a carry trade. It has a tail because everybody's in the same position. But there is a chase, right? Everybody's trying to get ahead of these flows. And the bigger entities, which are sometimes not as nimble like banks, et cetera, really do it at a somewhat predictable end of day, beginning of day kind of window. And so people are on to some of these flows, right? And then people will try and front run or get ahead of these flows, right? And so understanding these participants, understanding that they're coming, that they're inevitable, and how the marketplace is going to react to that is critical. But you know, these are the things that we're looking at when we look at kind of the path dependency tied to time and what's driving these factors. We model the behavior and it's changing over time, right? As people become more cognizant, we've talked a lot about the overnight kind of outperformance. That's something that has always existed to some extent, but has really accelerated. And that acceleration, in our view, we feel very strongly is tied to these flows from Vana and Charm, which are growing over time and which are quite consistent. And participants have have realized it and realized that there's an edge to kind of getting ahead of these flows. And so this really drives an outperformance in, in the extended day. Now, question is, you know, will there be front running of that? And how does that affect that all, you know, all of this stuff? Those flows aren't going away. They're growing, if anything. You know, the edge and alpha that's you can gain from it is growing, but that also kind of affects the market, you know, and how participants are going to time that. So those are kind of the things we're looking at. So speaking about the acceleration of these events, in a prior conversation that we had, you said that you thought the wand devaluation in 2015 really served as, and I'm quoting here, a warning shot for what the new market regime was going to look like. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's interesting. People don't really, you know, you hear a lot of talk about 2018 XIV blowout and how that may have been kind of a first kind of clue that things are changing in the market. My view is August 2015 was really kind of a new thing. You know, my 22 years of doing this, there was no more stressful, especially given how small a move that relatively was. Screens were black for about 30 minutes to an hour there. There was no market. For how small a move that was, you know, it really exposed this illiquidity on the tails that now exists dramatically um, that you know, has always existed to some extent, but as a structural phenomenon. And um, we had a situation where SKU was at a record level because of margin calls. It really spoke to kind of, again, a warning shot to what was coming. 2018 was a similar scenario in February with the XIV blowout, but at least people had, some participants had experienced something and it was a bit more controlled despite being somewhat chaotic than August of 15 was because it was at least something that was in the data set then. I think that was an important moment. And now that we've had two events like that, call it three now with March, I think it people are beginning to realize that this is not the same market in that extent, especially with a, you know, moving towards a removal of liquidity with the move to fiscal that I mentioned earlier, I think there people are, are waking up to the fact that there's a very toxic, dangerous kind of set of risks here with a volatility market that's as big as it is with illiquidity on the tails and an increasingly lack of ability to respond with the liquidity necessary given that. So I remember one of our first really in-depth conversations, which was incredibly illuminating for me, it actually occurred when I was writing my liquidity cascades paper. And you were one of the first 
people to really highlight for me how these index flow effects within the world of derivatives and options could actually be having profound impacts upon the return structure of the underlying stocks. So for example, you actually argued that volatility in 2017 was low. Most people would argue that volatility in 2017 was low because stock correlations were low. You might actually argue the inverse, that correlations were low because volatility was pinned. And I think that's counterintuitive for a lot of people. So I was hoping maybe you could expand on that idea. Yeah. So again, going back to days in the pits, you see the trades happening. You see the hedging happening in real time. You understand this isn't correlation that's making me make this statement. This is causation. I've seen it in real life. There was a fund called Catalyst. Some people might remember it in 2017. They pinned the market in August, literally to the strike in their one by three. They were way bigger than the market. And that's just one of many examples in 2017, probably the biggest example. And you know, there's something should be written up about that actually episode. Because again, very illuminating, important thing that happened. The market did not move in August away from that strike because there was so much open interest. We moved exactly to that strike, sat, and they had an incredible performance. Obviously, they ended up getting bigger than the market. Everybody knew like their positions at some point, and they end up having major problems soon after that, as the market kind of tends to do, reflexively kind of get after the potential whale that's out there. But we saw in 2017 the lowest implied and realized volatility in history. Realized volatility was 30% lower than the next lowest in history, which was in 2006, which again is not really a coincidence, right? These are times when implied volatility was at its most supplied in history. Why are these periods? Why was there so much selling of implied volatility? Tina, right? There is no alternative. The chase for yield, people discovered options. Option selling was incredibly profitable. The profitability led to more assets, not just coming in, but just from the profits alone which led to more selling and eventually led to a situation where everybody, all dealers were oversupplied with vol at incredibly at historically low levels. What does that do? That forces gamma hedging. And this is all focused on the indices, to be very clear, not in single name, all focused directly on the indices. So all the gamma hedging forces realized volatility down. That said, this vol selling is not happening in the single list names. And idiosyncratic risk still exists. At the end of the day, if there's a cure for cancer, that stock that came up with a cure for cancer is going to move. If a stock beats earnings dramatically, they're going to move. And because the volatility there is not pinned, it also allows it to move. But if those stocks move and the index is pinned, that means another stock or another set of stocks have to move in the opposite direction. And so we also had the lowest correlation in history by about 20%. Not a coincidence. It's a structural phenomenon. If the index is pinned, ultimately, if that's a different center of trading and the single names have to go in another direction, this has to happen. Again, saw it in real, you know, real life. Dispersion trading was the most profitable it's ever been during that time, despite higher and higher dispersion valuation. But yeah, something I saw in real time, knew it before. Again, it just goes back to this reflexivity that I've talked about again and again. And it's amazing to me how few people really understand this critical kind of component of how markets work. It's all a big machine at the end of the day. There are flows. It's mechanical. So many people are trading these markets based on valuations and other things that that aren't the daily voting machine. They're this kind of long-term weighing machine. And the voting machine is really what matters day in, 
day out. And you know, I think to be a participant in this market, if you don't understand that machine intimately well, you're you're going to have big problems. Not only because you're not going to have that edge, but actually it puts you at a disadvantage because you're making bets on things that ultimately are not tied to the ultimate performance. So in a similar line of thought, in the last year, one of the things that we've witnessed is this really dramatic increase in speculative call option buying, in particular in single name equities. And so much so that you know the new narrative is about orchestrated gamma squeezes, sort of this unstoppable force. And so my question to you is, if we have this pinning that's occurring at the index level, and these gamma squeezes that are occurring at the individual stock level, what happens when the unstoppable force of the gamma squeeze meets the immovable object of the index pinning? Great dispersion trading. <laughs> that's what happens. And, and that's what's happening now, right? I mean, implied correlation is at some of the highest levels it's been in a long time. And it's happening at a relatively high vol level. And again, that is exactly because of, of what you're seeing. We're also seeing incredible rotation. We early on, you know, from a macro perspective, kind of picked up on this, you know, interest rates are likely to go higher with the move to fiscal, right? But it's important that a lot of this rotation we're seeing is not just those macro effects underlying the market. They're actually these volatility effects, these mechanical effects where if there's so much retail call buying in these single, these high-flying single names and the momentum slows, that creates negative VANA flows in those products. Whereas in the indices, like we've talked about, there's significant positive VANA flows because puts are morbid and dealers are short put. So you have this kind of opposite situation where these high-flying single names have really high call skew and dealers are short call long put. Whereas in the indices, you have the exact opposite. So you're having this really heavy flow in opposite directions here. And it's almost across the board, everybody has the same position on. This is ultimately reinforcing this massive rotation we're seeing and, and could really give it legs for a significant period of time. And again, it's something that people don't understand, aren't talking about. People talk about the duration trade and interest rates as a fundamental view. There's a lot more going on under the hood. So I do want to talk about some of those macro pieces because you don't shy away from expressing your views about them. You talk about the macro landscape and the macro landscape's effects on sectors and factors and styles and individual securities and thematic baskets. So can you explain for me maybe how these puzzle pieces do fit into this flow-driven market? Yeah. So I want to be clear. I, I try and shy away from what I call fundamentals, which are kind of earnings and other things. Specifically, I, I want to know how are these things affecting flows? That's ultimately, how are they affecting the machine? And the biggest input into the machine is the Federal Reserve or central banks in general and the Treasury. For the longest time, the Treasury wasn't doing much. So it was just the Federal Reserve, right? So when we talk about, you know, again, another adage like don't fight the Fed, why? Because of the reflexivity of the Fed is pumping, if the Fed is pumping a ton of money in, right, there's a ton of liquidity, that means gamma essentially is oversupplied. If gamma is oversupplied, the market's not going to move. It's not going to be able to have the tail, which is going to create VANA flows, which are going to drive the market up. This is how things work. So the biggest flow of all, the pipe is coming out of New York Fed, right? And so, or has been. And so understanding that has made a lot of people a lot of money, even though they don't necessarily understand the underlying mechanics. The thing we were able to pick up on early on is a move from the central banks and monetary policy to fiscal policy changes everything. The pipes all of a sudden flow to a completely different set of constituents. It's not flowing to companies or wealthy individuals anymore. It starts flowing to individuals. And so 
the second you start thinking through that, what does that mean? What does that mean for you know what participants are going to change the market? You get to places like retail option buying is going to go through the roof, and that's going to have X Y Z effects. Or more importantly, once this economy reopens, a lot of that money that was flowing into the market is going to flow into goods, into services, and ultimately that's going to drive not asset inflation. That money's not flowing into investments, it's flowing into goods. That's going to create better earnings, a stronger economy, and ultimately inflation. Now, inflation, higher rates is very different than lower rates, right? Less liquidity to the markets is very different than more liquidity. And the second you start piecing through that framework, you really begin to understand the risks on a liquidity-driven bubble or market, right? With all these Tina effects. Now rates are going higher, the Tina effect unwinds, money comes out of equities. Vol goes higher. There's nowhere to you know hedge. There's all kinds of risk parity issues, all the things that we know. But that framework, this understanding of the machine, and just looking at the flows from the top down, really allows us to to make I think sound long term and very short term kind of um, models for distributions of, of of the market. We talk about shying away from fundamentals, and a lot of people do ultimately think right that an equity should be equal to the discounted future cash flow. In the short term, the market's a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. And I guess what I would suggest is based on this conversation, it almost seems like the weighing machine never comes into the equation, that, that this is all a flow machine. And so I guess my question to you would be, is that ultimately dangerous or does it not matter that there's any true connection here to underlying fundamentals in any way? What happens if this just becomes a flow machine for another 10 years and it becomes wildly distorted in terms of what prices are relative to fundamental company cash flow? So I want to be clear, in the very long term, all that matters is cash flows. Because at the end of the day, at some point, you're going to have a liquidity crisis. At some point, liquidity is not going to be available. And when liquidity is not available, companies have to create their own liquidity. And that's where fundamentals matter. I've used this analogy before. It's kind of hokey, but I can't think of a better one. If you think of a better one, let me know. But if you're on an airplane and you're 30,000 feet off the ground, that 30,000 feet off the ground is the valuation gap, right? That's the things are really, you know, valuations are really high. But if those engines are firing, are you worried up in that plane about the valuations? Or are you worried about, is the speed and trajectory of where you're going based on the rocket, you know, based on the engines, based on the flows. That's what matters. The flows are what matter for where you're going in the market. But when all of a sudden those engines go off, how far off the ground you are is all that matters. And so it's more of a risk management tool. And ultimately, it really matters when you have a liquidity crisis. It also matters when not just a crisis, but really when rates start to go higher. If rates were to go back to eight, nine, ten, something crazy, again. Nobody can borrow money. There is no liquidity. Ultimately, then it discounted cash flows are all that matters again. And we have a world where fundamentals are all that matters again. So I want to be clear. It's not that fundamentals don't matter at all. It's they don't matter in a world of massive liquidity. They only matter to the extent that they are necessary for purchasing their own stock or paying, you know, or buying other companies or supporting their ultimate valuation. So assuming we continue to swim in a world of massive liquidity, what's a traditional stock picker to do? Or even what's an equity quant to do, a a factor quant to do in this environment? If they're trying to pick based on fundamentals or some traditional measure characteristics that used to matter, is any of that relevant anymore? Or should they be totally changing 
how they're thinking about building equity portfolios? I mean, correlations still matter to some extent, right? And they matter to the extent that the participants themselves think they matter. At some point, all of this will matter much more when liquidity is not infinite. But if you're not looking at the flows and you don't understand the positioning, you're ultimately playing a very dangerous game, which is you're betting on something that doesn't ultimately in the short term have anything to do with the outcome. And that puts you in a really dangerous situation. We saw this with certain hedge funds you know, playing the valuation game in uh, these meme stocks. They're playing a valuation game. Valuations don't matter. That puts them at a huge disadvantage. If they're not looking at the flows, they ultimately are massively at risk. And so my unfortunate answer is I, until the liquidity situation changes, it is not other than the fact that there are other participants playing that same game and affecting those flows. It is not what's ultimately driving price and can put you at a disadvantage. You've become far more vocal in the last year about these effects. And as I mentioned, one of the only people talking about the Vanna and Charm effects. Are you not concerned that as more people become aware of all of this and start to try to factor it into their analysis, that these flows ultimately become arbed away, that people keep front running it faster and faster and faster? That's a great question. So a couple of things. People ask me again and again, why are you telling everybody this? You know, if this is so important and you have the secret key, why would you give it away? Well, the reality is that there are a lot of participants who already know. There's a couple of corners of the world. These things are already being front run in a major way. And these are not going away, to be clear. None of these effects, again, they've been there since, as far as I'm concerned, the beginning of time. These flows are not going to disappear. The question is, how are they going to be hedged? And so, you know, my view is that on two levels, democratizing this to some extent is in some ways a good thing because it's not just a couple of big players kind of taking this away. It allows everybody to have a better understanding of the market and the efficiency. It also makes the system quite a bit more stable in my view, which in some ways is a positive. From my perspective too, talking about these things, life is short. I'll be here for 20 years, but being somebody who, who got out here and made, you know, introduced people to an important concept and kind of change the kind of maybe the trajectory of how tens of hundreds of thousands of participants play is very important to me. You know, um, I do enjoy teaching. I do enjoy that process. But also, secondarily, I think it's important to get these ideas out there for my brand and what we do and to educate people for understanding how we are the experts at, at understanding these, whether they, we go to first, second, third, fourth order effects of how this will affect the markets. We'll be kind of at, at the front of that and wanting to communicate that as part of why I talk about it as well. Well, Jim, last question for you. I believe you mentioned to me your wife recently received her vaccines. Vaccines are around the corner. Fingers crossed the world is getting back to normal pretty soon. What is the first thing you'll do when you get back to freedom? I'm going to go to Italy and I'm going to go eat in a cafe outside, pasta, wine, go to a museum or two, go to a concert, travel in a big European city with my wife and friends and enjoy a lot of the things that we did what feels like many years ago. I love it, and I hope you can put me in your suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome to come. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, my friend, it has been a real joy. I know I learned a lot. I hope the listeners did as well. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Corey. If you're enjoying the season, please consider heading over to your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a rating or review and sharing us with friends or on social media. It helps new people find us and helps us grow. 
Finally, if you'd like to learn more about newfound research, our investment mandates, mutual funds, or associated ETFs, please visit thinknewfound.com. And now welcome back to my ongoing conversation with Harley Bassman. Harley, you are well known as the progenitor of the Move Index, which is maybe to a layperson who hasn't heard of it, sort of a VIX equivalent for U.S. Treasuries. I'm curious, what's the origin story? Thank you. Well, VIX equivalent is more than that. I'm kind of copying the VIX. The VIX came out in like 1990, and uh, I was running the option business at Merrill Lynch, and I recognized that we did not have a way to communicate to our clients the relative nature of volatility, because there's no easy way to talk about it. And so we created the move. And interestingly enough, we actually have data that goes before the move. We have data that goes back to 1988. It's a very simple index. It's not weighted per se. Basically one-month options on the two-year, five-year, 10-year, and 30-year treasury. And it's easy to read and easy to have a context. Until financial repression, it ranged from 80 to 120. You were supposed to buy it under 80 and sell it over 120. Of course, that never worked. When it was in the 70s, you'd be bored out of your mind and thinking it's going to zero. And when it got to 120, you'd be under your desk and crying for your mother. I guess it wasn't quite as effective as we had hoped, but it, it does give a good sense. Presently, it's at 66. There's technical reasons why it's that low having to do with the front end and the zero boundary. But even adjusting for that, volatility right now is very low for interest rates, which is anomalous relative to the shape of the curve and to public policy going forward. 